This is episode 139 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we have two guests, uh, Christina Scoglin. She is an Arizona transplant from Ohio via Pennsylvania, North Carolina. She did her undergraduate degree in communications at Wake Forest University and completed her master's at Arizona State University. She originally wanted to work with children with autism, but then quickly switched to adults when she did an observation rotation in acute care. She has spent her entire career in acute care and works full-time for one hospital and PRNs for another, both trauma level one centers. She has experience with fees, MBS, ICU, trach and vent, and has trained multiple students and assists other SLPs in obtaining competency in the ICU for fees and modified bearing swallow studies. She is CBIS certified and a member of SIG 13, and in her spare time, she loves to eat, travel, and hike. And our next guest is Jessica Lasky. Jessica did a wonderful episode for us a while back uh, about mentorship, and she is a wonderful, wonderful mentor. She also lives in Arizona and owns a mobile fees company, but she also works for a neuro rehab and a trauma level one hospital. Her passion is dysphagia and the adult population. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Do you feel unfulfilled in your career as a medical SLP and perhaps a bit confused on how to even move forward? Do you feel completely overwhelmed, overworked, overstressed, yet completely misunderstood and underappreciated in your facility? Do you feel like you're riding the therapy hamster wheel, unsure if you're even providing good therapy for your patients? When you started practicing medical speech pathology after grad school, did you get overwhelmed with how much medical SLP information was missing from your graduate education? If you've been working in the field for a while, do you feel frustrated that there's no one single centralized source to stay up to date on all the latest research and treatments that are coming out every year? Are you even sure you're providing the right and best, most up-to-date treatment techniques for your patients? Are you sick of paying up to $500 for courses that teach you about just one of the many, many conditions you need to stay up to date on? Imagine if there was one place that you could go to receive all the support and resources to help you eliminate these feelings. Imagine how much time and frustration you would save if you had immediate access to one centralized location for blind peer-reviewed resources. Imagine if you had access to several clinical experts and university professors to help guide you in your clinical decision-making with personalized response to your clinical cases. Imagine if you felt you had the detailed, personalized support you needed to succeed in your practice and your career from a wide range of experts and fellow clinicians who care deeply about your career development. Do you think then your patients would receive higher quality care and actually make progress towards their goals? Do you think you would get more rewarded and recognized for this progress among your patients and in your facilities? What if I told you I've created this exact solution? It's called the Medical SLP Collective. It's a monthly membership program and vibrant community of fellow medical SLP clinicians and researchers who are supporting each other to provide better care for their patients and therefore also advance their careers. 
My name is Kristen West. I'm a pediatric speech language pathologist that specializes in children with medically complex histories, and I've worked with them in a variety of settings. What I love most about the Med SLP Collective is that it is such a passionate group of speech language pathologists that really strive to provide the highest level of care to their patients through the implementation of evidence-based practice in our field. It's also such a supportive learning environment where everybody is willing to share their expertise and their knowledge to help grow individuals' professional practice, but also advance our profession. It really is such an interesting and unique learning community. I never have incur- um, I never have encountered anything like that in the field until I joined the Med SLP Collective, and I really can't say enough great things about it. I truly cannot say enough good things about being a part of the Med SLP Collective. It's really changed the way that I approach every single type of patient that I may not have been 100% confident in. So obviously we wanna work within our realm of competency and make sure our patients are getting the best care, but sometimes the job comes with things that we maybe don't feel highly confident on. So I was trained in voice and I was lucky enough to be trained by an incredible voice pathologist and feel very confident in my voice skills. But my entire career, I have worked in voice and swallowing institutes. And so with the voice people come the swallowing people as well. And that's not something I always was very confident in. And the Metal SP Collective has given me so many resources and so much actual information that you can use in the clinic. I've always loved going to conferences and meeting colleagues and networking and being inspired by the researchers, but I always felt lackluster as I came away from it, like I didn't have anything to go home and use. And anytime I'm feeling unsure of anything, I can reach out to a mentor in the group or just the other members. You can go on the website and get instructions on how to do exercises, the rationale behind it, evidence-based practice. It's really just a wealth of knowledge and it has grown my clinical practice immensely and made me feel so much more confident and inspired as a clinician. Hey everybody, Natalie Douglas here from Central Michigan University. And there are so many reasons that I love the Medical SLP Collective and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Probably the biggest reason is that I love how clinicians are able to approach mentors in ways that specifically solve clinical problems that they're facing right in the moment and get very tailored advice that is supportive and really meeting the needs that they have right then, which I think is such a unique contribution to the profession. I also sincerely appreciate how much Teresa really cultivates a culture of respect and collaboration and the resources are just completely top-notch. She has a rigorous peer review process and the resources again are based on true SLP need and I just love how this is an awesome way to merge research and clinical practice in a supportive collaborative environment can't say enough about it. If you are interested in checking out the MetaSLP Collective, um, please head over to metaslpcollective.com and get on the waiting list. Enrollment opens May 17th. Uh, We will be open for about a week and then we will be closing enrollment down. We do have a student rate this time. I know, especially with 
COVID-19, we have so many grad students that have been displaced from their placements, externships, practicums, and we want to help. So we will have a student rate available. We also do have corporate rates now. So if you are looking to get um, access to the MedSLP Collective for all of the SLPs in your facility or within your corporation, uh, please reach out to us. We'd be happy to work out a rate for you. So again, enrollment opens May 17th. Head to MedSLPCollective.com to get on the waiting list and be the first to be notified. Hello, ladies. Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah. It's going to be an awesome conversation today. I am so honored and delighted to have you guys. Jess, tell the people who you are. So my name is Jessica Kalaski. I am a medical speech pathologist here in Phoenix, Arizona. I own a mobile fleece company as well as I work in a neuro rehab and a trauma one hospital. Awesome. And Christina? I um, am Christina Skoglund. I am also a medical speech pathologist. Um, I work full-time at one trauma level one hospital and PRN at another and have spent all seven years of my career in acute care. Awesome. All right. So what do you guys want to talk about today? Oh, so many things. So many things. Yay. (laughs) Yay. Where should we start, Jess? I think that we need to start with the largest elephant ever sitting in every room of every medical SLP right now, which is fees. Fees. Fees and COVID. And we absolutely, no way in heck should be doing it, right? Never. Yeah. No, not at all. No, our patients don't deserve care anymore at all. (laughs) Okay. Glad glad we cleared that up. Okay. So yeah, let's talk about that. So... I mean, clearly, I'm fairly opinionated on the topic just because of a lot of different things, but um, these are patients that are kind of the first wave. They're brand new. We don't know anything about them, and they're being intubated for just crazy long periods of time. I think longer than any typical patient we've ever seen in the history, at least as long as I've been practicing. And so we're being asked to come and assess these patients and figure out what to do with them and manage their care and kind of being put in situations that, again, I think we've never been placed in before of what do we do? We have so few options and what do we do for these patients? And I think it's a really interesting time to be practicing you know, I'm going to let Christina pop in on this one because I think she has a unique perspective from our one trauma hospital. Yeah, I think um, it's uncharted waters right now. It's there's on one hand these you know our patients who have been intubated and or trached um, have spent a lot of time in the ventilator and we expect to have laryngeal dysfunction just like any other acutely ill patient. On the other hand, it's a totally different ball game because of the virus and all of the unknown factors of it and the incredibly contagious nature of it. So it's something that I've never faced before in practice. And um, we're having to lean heavily on our nurses and our doctors and our respiratory therapists and our infectious disease specialists to kind of guide what do we do with limited resources and limited knowledge and evolving knowledge and how do we go about feasing these patients? It's a terrifying thing. How do we make it less terrifying and how do we make it as safe for ourselves as possible? Yeah. And, and the one thing I want to stress here, because I don't, I, I don't know why people think that this isn't the issue, but it's definitely what I know is going on. These are entire medical team decisions. 
it's not like you guys just saying, we need to fees this patient. I'm not going to talk to anybody else. I'm going to just go do it. And that's it. And that's not it at all. Like these are huge, heavy conversations, weighing lots of benefits, lots of risks. Is Should we do this? Should we not? And I know that there's so many people, there's really a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but it's to the patient's benefit, obviously. And so I, I would love if you guys could just kind of talk about about that part of how you've gotten the support of the medical team and the medical team really has has wanted you to carry on with doing fees. Yeah, I can um, kind of talk about this part in the the very, very beginning days where COVID was emerging and we were realizing that it was gonna be in our hospitals and that we were gonna have these very critically ill patients. Our management team and myself, we came together and we kind of were like, what, what is this gonna look like? What are we gonna be able to offer these patients if anything? And we started going through the scenarios of let's pretend we have a patient that is post-extubation and is very high risk for dysphagia. What would our physicians want us to do? And when we were talking to some of the physicians, they were coming to us and saying, these patients, you know, they're if they aspirate, that's going to be a very deadly consequence for them. So we definitely want you guys on board. So we had a general idea that our physicians were going to be advocating for us to be present with these patients. And then we had a couple options. Do we do just a bedside? Do we do an MBS? Do we do a fees? What do we do for these patients to capitalize on the fact that we're going to be asked to be there? We're going to be provided PPE. And what are we going to do that's going to give us the biggest bang for our buck for these patients? And right away, we realized that the issue with MBS, at least at our facilities, was that these patients were going to have to leave their rooms. So a highly contagious COVID patient who's very, very weak. And COVID aside, when you bring a patient out of an ICU room and you transport them, you elevate their risk for an adverse event. So you add COVID onto that, now you have a patient that could have an adverse event and is highly contagious traveling through your hospital. That just didn't seem like the wisest idea to anybody that was you know, coming and we, when we were having these conversations. So we landed on fees and we kind of looked and said, okay, if we're going into this room and we're going to be providing services to this patient and we're going to potentially risk exposure and all these other things, what do we want to be doing with that half hour, hour in the room? Do we want to be doing a bedside or do we want to be just heading heading straight to instrumentation and kind of seeing what's going on and getting in there, getting the information and then being able to direct the medical care team. And so we decided, you know, we didn't want to throw the bedside completely out, but we realized that to provide the best services fees was going to have to be included. And then we started about writing policies and procedures on how to get the cart into the ICU, how to do the procedure, how to get it out, how to clean it. And we went step by step by step and we wrote it all down and we created all of these things for our team to look at and to consider when they go in to do this and kind of just set the the groundwork of what would it look like and how could we do it safely. And when we wrote it all down, we sent it to our infectious disease team for them to review, give us any feedback that they wanted us to have. And then we had a set of policies, essentially a, a framework of how to fees in a COVID ICU as safely as humanly possible, considering that these patients aren't going anywhere. We're going to have to do something. And when we started looking at, like, do we put a duo tube in? 
if they're going to be blindly sticking something in somebody's nose, why not it be my camera that I have vision with through the camera and might as well get the information on the swallow and then go from there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of how our healthcare system came to the collective decision of our physician wanted us in. And then we went about systematically creating a set of guidelines that we could follow to go and see these patients. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the other elephant in the room is, okay, so was ENT on board with this? Was infection control on board with this? And obviously infection control approved your policy and procedures. Yes. Mm -hmm. We don't have in-house ENT to say yay or nay, but when we were going through the procedure, we were describing it in detail to the infectious disease physicians, and we were providing them with evidence as it was emerging and kind of describing how we do our studies and kind of how that may differ from what maybe some of the information leaking out of the ENT world was different than maybe what we were doing as far as like the nasal sprays and the numbing and things like that, that we've actually never used in our hospital. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I give a lot of credit to ASHA with, the, with their statement because they basically said, you know, postpone nothing that doesn't have to be done right away. But if you need to do it, you better have documented medical necessity as well as PPE, as well as conversations with the entire medical staff. And I think nobody's reckless, like nobody's stupid with that. You know, I, I, I don't know of anybody that's gone in and willingly done a fees without having these heavy conversations, without having proper PPE and knowing that this is definitely going to change the outcome of the patient's medical stay. And, and I think that's what's what I want to stress. And I think if I can add something, the something that Jess left out is that we are not just jumping to fees you know, right away on every single patient who's been intubated, you know, as part of our normal ICU practice, after someone's been extubated, the nurse completes the three ounce water test to essentially pass or fail a patient, you know, from, from get go right after they're extubated. So we're relying on that pretty heavily, especially now that we're not relying on clinical bedside evaluations to help direct our practice. We're really relying on these nurses who are already in the room to do the three ounce water test and hopefully do it correctly so that we can know did they pass, did they fail? If they failed, why did they fail? How'd they fail? And then a further discussion with the nurse as to are they ready for a fees? If they did fail, are they ready for a fees? Are they alert oriented? You know, can they maintain that alertness? You know, all the factors we consider with a normal fees because we want to be judicious with our time and our equipment and our exposure. So there have been patients who, you know, get excavated and they're not quite ready for these yet, but um, we, we're relying pretty heavily on that three ounce to, to give us information and to guide us. Were your, were your guys nurses educated on how to do the three ounce water test before COVID? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you already had that, that in place. So it wasn't much too different. Yeah, no, there was no thank the Lord, there was no education component to get that part up and running in our hospitals. It's part of our stroke and post-extubation protocol that we already have. Beautiful. And I think just like anything else, you know, it's it's only as good as a person who's administering it. So there's been ongoing education as to how to how to do that. Yeah. Have you guys integrated any of the like kind of telehealth component in in 
maybe being like outside of the room or communicating in no just not not in the traditional sense that you're talking about like where maybe they wheel an ipad up to the patient and we're looking at the patient through the ipad we are doing a lot more communication by phone with the nurses or maybe outside of the room with the nurses but we don't have a plethora of iPads um, in our units or a lot of money for brand new technology to kind of convert our ICUs into being telehealth ready. So we we haven't had that, that ability. And one of our units that is cohorting COVID patients, um, they do have access to iPads, which was actually news to me when I went to see a patient. Um, and so certain physicians and, and team members are using that to communicate with the patient to limit exposure. But insofar as what we've done, I feel like, Jess, you can, can correct me if you think I'm wrong, is what we're doing is pretty, I mean, we're talking about these, pretty hands-on. So if we have certain questions, we're kind of, you know, relying on the nurse and we're certainly in communication with families if we need information from them versus we just normally go in the room and ask the patient themselves, well, we don't want to use the PPE in that case. So let's ask the nurse to go do it next time they're in the room or let's call the family and, and speak to them over the phone. Yeah, that's exactly correct. Well, let me ask you guys, because I think what's really interesting is I had our friend Kelsey on from LA and she was saying that really these swallows post-extubation 20, 30 days intubated are very well intact and, and surprisingly good. And then I just interviewed a woman um, from New York City last week and she said they're just the most horrible, horrific swallows they've ever seen. So I, I'm... This is clinical experience at its, at its finest here. <laughs> I'm like, depends which coast you ask. So actually, what's going on? <laughs> I was actually going to say, how funny is that? It must be a West Coast thing. I'll yeah, let Christina yeah. speak to the fees she's done. But as far as the fees that I've been doing in different ICUs around Arizona, I've been seeing a lot of surprisingly intact swallows. I'm seeing a little bit of some post-extubation dysphagia, very mild, but I haven't um, had a patient that I've done the initial fees on where they haven't been able to initiate some form of a diet. And I've only had a handful of patients that have had um, a little bit of silent aspiration with thin, more from like laryngeal vestibule closure issues, swelling, edema, trauma, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think Jess and I were talking about this yesterday. And when I listened to Kelsey's podcast, I was kind of nodding along. Um, These patients are doing surprisingly well for what they've been through. You know, I, I don't know what I expected to see, but given the length of intubation and the complexity of these cases, I think I expected for it to be pretty bad once we got in there. But these patients are doing surprisingly well. I'm trying to think of the cases. Most of the patients have been able to start some sort of slightly modified diet um, from the get-go, and those who weren't were able to do so in, in a number of days. They just needed a little bit of time, and sometimes mental status, you know, contributes to that. But Within a couple of days, most of these patients are on near near normal, if not normal, diet. So it's it's been really uplifting, heartening to see that. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and I've been. I was telling Christina about a patient that I had that had been intubated for almost twenty five days. And I feast her in the ICU. We put her on, she was able to start a diet. And then funny enough, my my mobile business got called to a different facility that she was at, at a rehab. And I saw her and we were able to do regular thin just about a week and a half later. So beautiful. I mean, you think about that compared to 
pre-COVID, when you had a patient who was intubated for 25 days, I feel like they weren't having these amazing swallows. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd love to go there, Jess, if, if you don't mind uh, talking about the, the next level of care once they leave the ICU, once they leave acute care. And I obviously this is my bone to pick with the world because I there's just so many patients that are being forgotten and neglected came to mind, but that's not the way I want to portray these patients, but just not getting the care that they they normally should and, and do deserve at this time. Yeah, I see a lot of patients slipping through the cracks. I understand that there are areas of the country where this has completely infested every portion of, you know, every type of facility. But here in Phoenix, you know, we're kind of in a lower rate. We've been doing pretty well. We have the PPE and I'm still seeing some of these patients being left behind, which is, you know, it's sad because I see a lot of misinformation being put out to the public from various sources. And I see clinicians feeling very torn. What do I do? What's safe to do? What is not safe to do? And I see a lot of them freezing. Like they don't know, like, should I think I should do this. I normally would have, but I don't know. I saw maybe I shouldn't. So I'm just going to stand still. And maybe the answer will just like happen. And so things are going really, really long. And then I'm seeing like, patients where I'm getting an order and they're like, well, three weeks ago, I was thinking about it. And now like, it's a giant, complete train wreck mess because they, these clinicians didn't feel empowered to still do their job and still make the recommendations that they needed to make as well as there's fewer resources. You know, a lot of the outpatient MBS providers are shut down and may remain shut down. Some of them are starting to open back up. Mobile businesses have shut down or maybe didn't feel comfortable, didn't have access to PPE. There's just been a lot of, I think, there's been a lot of things that have shown us that we really weren't prepared for these, for anything bad to happen. And it showed us a lot of cracks in the system. But I, I'm, of course, an advocate of getting these people, these studies, you know, even in the times of COVID, but just doing it doing it diligently with all of the proper things set up. So, you know, I I want my clinicians to feel empowered because they've thought through what the process is going to look like to be able to perform these studies. And that's probably the biggest thing that I think when everybody was initially starting to freak out about COVID and fees, instead of going down the rabbit hole of AGP, non-AGP, all of those different things. I stepped back and I started to go, okay, so let's say it is AGP. Okay, how do I do this? How do I do it? Taking that into consideration, what would those steps be? What physicians can I start to rely on to ask questions of? And is there a way for us to create a set of like a a procedure that we could all take and start to use and go see these patients? And I think that's where my healthcare stepped up, my healthcare team stepped up to the plate as well as I was able to hire a physician for my private practice. And we were able to come up with those policies and procedures. And then we were still a little bit of ahead of the curve. So we were able to set aside PPE or get PPE and really get those things set so that we could start to do those studies when patients, when the need finally came. Because again, they were getting intubated when we were having these conversations. It was another 20, 30 days before we started getting orders on them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what I'm noticing now more than ever is just the influx of like family members reaching out 
trying to get their loved ones help, you know, and I, and I, I hate that. Like, I, I hate that it's come to our own profession doesn't feel comfortable or confident or really know, should we, shouldn't we? So we're not. And now just the families in uproar trying to do anything they can to help their family member get a swallow study so they can get get onto this next level of care or get home or get on a diet or or physicians. I've had a lot of physicians reaching out to me going, oh my God, I don't know what to do. Like my, my speech pathologist is saying that things that they've always told me I needed these test results. We needed these things. And now we have patients and they're telling me there's nothing that can be done. And they rightfully so, are very confused and want the best for their patients and want us to figure out a way to get these tests done, if at all humanly possible and safely. And so I think it's coming from all ends. And that's where I think I'd like to see. And I think I have seen more and more and more. I think there were those of us that started to figure this process out, but we just did it very quietly. And so we're all starting to emerge and start to talk, starting to talk about it a little bit of like, oh yeah, well, like I started, you know, I, I had a clinician reach out to me that was like, I, I'm ready to get fees going in my ICU. Like we're ready. We, we just need to figure out how to do it. Like, how do we go about doing this? And this was a few weeks ago and her hospital system, along with myself and a few other people were able to come up with a set of policies and procedures for them to start doing it. And so, you know, I think that I don't know. I'm ready for the controversy to kind of be over and let's all move forward and figure out what we need to do for our patients. Yeah. And, and I think what I think of too, Jess, is, is you've had a good, strong, respectable, respectful relationship with your doctors before this all happened. And I think a lot of this, you know, people have said, well, our doctors just told us no. It's like, okay, okay. Ask them, ask them why. Right. It may be a hard no, but you may be able to have a conversation about it and see if they might be willing to talk to infection control and talk to infectious disease and see if somebody can get on common ground. Exactly. It still may be a no, but it also might be a yes. And you don't know that. Or it might be a no today, but what about next week? Like give the physician the benefit of the doubt that they're going through unprecedented like unprecedented chaos and that they need a minute, they need a minute to think. And so I think of one very small rural hospital that I go to with my mobile business and they initially were like, yep, we're done. We're closing like all fees down. And I was like, well, I'd love to speak with the physician. And I spoke to this particular physician that was the head of the physicians. And he was like, no, I can't do this. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Call me back (laughs) when you get the patient that needs this because there will be the patient. And then we can start to talk about it. And sure enough, two weeks later, he called me and he was like, okay, like what, what would this look like? Do you, do you have any idea? I'm willing for you to present me the data so that I can then make a decision, yay or nay, and we can decide what to do with these patients. And that was something that I realized like they needed, he just needed time. He needed a little bit of time because there's not great data out there for us to review. And I think all of us as professionals, you know, we've all started to move towards that evidence-based practice and physicians have been there a lot longer than us. And so, you know, I think that's the hardest thing is for them to say yes to something where there maybe isn't a ton of evidence. And I think to add on to what's just saying, everyone's kind of reaches their capacity a lot quicker. Like everyone's kind of just getting by to a certain extent, you know, doctors are 
they don't have all the answers. You know, our, our government doesn't always have all the answers. So they're operating with what information they have in the moment. And sometimes when we ask, you know, are they, are they ready for a swallow exam? That's like the last thing on their mind. They're just trying to make sure the patient is stable, breathing okay, and they have 15 or however many patients they're worried about who are, you know, on the forefront of their mind, and they just don't have the capacity to have that conversation at that moment. It's not that it's not important to them. It's just not the most pressing thing. And so I think we all, and it was mentioned in a prior podcast too, we all just need to give each other a little bit of slack and that everyone's doing the best they can. Nurses are stressed. You're probably not sleeping well. You know, their shift feels way longer than 12 hours. Doctors are pulling more shifts and everyone's just doing the best they can. So sometimes that conversation, the doctor's just not ready for it. And, and like Jess said, you know, circle back and, and ask ask the question, why not, or, or push or probe a little bit, a little bit later. Cause sometimes the doctor, the patient's ready for it, but the doctor's not ready to have uh, that conversation yeah. yet. Mm-hmm. I love, I love that you guys said that. Yeah. And I would also advocate that, you know, have your evidence and start to look at evidence, really look at it. Like, don't just look at the headline. Don't, don't just look at like the, the thing that's going to be I don't know what word I'm looking for, but like you read these headlines and you're like, oh my gosh, but like actually look at the data in the paper, like look at what's being said, look at what's being described and try to come up with your own conclusions and try to see what they're trying to impart and get as much information as you can. And one of the things that we realized when we were looking at fees, like I said, is that we don't use nasal sprays. We don't use the the spray numbing solutions or any of that. We use lubricant in our scope. And there was the question that was brought up, well, we're not aerosolizing with that puff of spray in multiple different ways. And in fact, one of the infectious doctors infectious disease physicians I worked with wondered if maybe the lubricant is actually even like coating that mucosa and kind of keeping things down. And he said he didn't necessarily have evidence for that, but he said, what he said was very compelling. It made sense. You know, we're essentially taking a sticky lubricant and coating the passage. And he also made a great comment to me of like, well, why don't you take a washcloth or a mask? And every time you have to have them cough or you see them about to cough, cover their mouth. And I was like, oh, cover their mouth and nose, just like right under my scope. Look at that. Like, so it was somebody that was completely outside of what I'm doing that took it to show me like what I needed to be doing. And so I think that, again, we have to look at our study and the way we're conducting our study to be something that we're taking into consideration as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I keep going back to this whole medical necessity thing, because I think I think what's interesting is there's always been a little section on our reports that have said medical necessity because Medicare requires it. Like that's nothing new. Yeah. And so like, I don't know about you, but I've really never feased anyone just for the hell of it. (laughs) I tell my patients that all the time. I'm, I'm, I would not be recommending this just for, you know, just for fun. Just for kicks. Cause I got nothing better to do today. (laughs) So, so I, I get a little like, I kind of roll my eyes when I see, you know, that we need to document medical necessity. But I think even more now, I think when I think of that, I think of it more as being an interdisciplinary medical necessity. Like, I think we just need more input and we need to document more about how this is going to impact, obviously, getting this patient to the next level of care. Because I think that's a huge ball that gets dropped in this whole thing. And I think we need to not forget the impact it has on that patient themselves. You know, if I was- The patient themselves, Jessica? I know, shocking. They're humans. Oh it's just like the, the missing link in oh, all of this. It is. <laughs> Poor human beings. Uh, 
they've survived something that they maybe yeah. aren't that there aren't that many survivors. They're in their head going, I shouldn't have survived this. What is that survival going to look like? And I think that's the part people get caught up on is they're looking at deaths or life or this or that, but like, what does that survival look like? And I know if that were me, survival had better include pizza and beer. Yeah. <laughs> Or in the case of one of my patients, cinnamon rolls, because I was, he was so depressed and I did his speaking valve evaluation and he did so fantastic with it that I said, okay, next up is, you know, a fees exam, talk to the doctor, doctor okayed it. And I, you know, was trying to get him to talk to me with the speaking valve on, trying to listen to some communication. And I said, so, you know, what is going to be your first request when you, you know, pass, quote unquote, the swallow exam, you know, what is it? What's your first request? And he thought about it and he said, I don't know. And then I came back later and he said, cinnamon rolls, my daughter, cinnamon rolls. And we feast him later that day. He did fantastic. And his daughter brought in cinnamon rolls and he oh, was, he was really happy. That and that's what it's all about. That is, that is not about. something. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. forget that quickly. And they were super good too. <laughs> they were really good. <laughs> Oh, I love that, Christina. I, I love that so much. And I think that's that's the biggest thing I don't want anybody to forget because I think that something I've noticed is that we patients that have COVID are almost ostracized. It's like they, I get it, they have our version of the plague, the modern plague, but they're still people and they still deserve care and they still deserve us to bring our A game and do what we came to do and what we signed up to do. We signed up to work with these patients. We signed up, granted, not to go in without proper PPE, not to go in without proper protection, but we signed up to do provide these services for these patients, just like the physicians did, just like the nurses did, just like the RTs did. And I think that that's something that has been something, you know, clearly I've written about it. I've, I've been pretty vocal about this, but it's something that I feel very passionately about is that we've been demanding respect for 30 plus years. This is the time that we show that we deserve that respect as well. And that we go in and we do our job and we do it with a level head and we do it safely, but we do what we can for these patients. And I, and I, I don't want to discount people that are out there working without proper PPE, because I do completely see the danger in that. Cause I know people are said, well, I don't have proper PPE. And I'm well, then don't yeah. do it. Please. No, like that is yeah. not what we're saying at all. So right away. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, and I don't have the answers for what to do in that situation. If your facility is not providing that for you or providing or asking you to do things without it, I I don't know what the answer is. The answer is probably no, but I know that. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> I know, yeah. I know that's, that's a hard. And I know people yeah. out there listening to this are going to, you know, definitely probably at times say, or maybe have a problem with this podcast because we are in an idealistic situation. You know, Christina and I, we have proper PPE. We have the support of our physicians. We'd been building this program and the strength of our program for years and years and Pre-COVID had had our physicians on board with swallow studies and the evidence and our our worth and our what we provided to the overall medical team. So when COVID hit, that never that didn't change. Like they didn't even think twice to us coming in, other than how are we going to do it safely? So, you know, and we're we're very lucky that we are in an institution that had enough PPE for us to be able to go in and work with these patients and be safe and be protected. And I agree with you, Teresa, wholeheartedly when I hear clinicians that don't have PPE, that's what, like, I would never, ever, ever recommend somebody do that. 
Like it's not worth your life. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're not, right, we're not right. martyrs. <laughs> right. 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 At least, at least I'm not. Yeah. I think it's something we haven't, we, Norma, we haven't, you know, we were set up for success in all the ways that Josh just said. And so we can only speak to that situation. And I can't imagine what it would be like to not have the support of physicians or to have, you know, a fees practice that's just starting up at the hospital or to not have the access to PPE to have all those question marks. That's what they are is question marks. And so that that would be a very tough situation to be in. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. And then you know, I know for myself, for my private practice, I just invested. I, I considered every piece of PP that I bought just an investment in my safety, in my health, and in the future of my company. And I realized that I was paying highly inflated prices for things, but I realized, you know, it was worth it. This is this is what I have to do to continue practicing and do what I need to do. And I was very lucky in that I was able to pro- purchase PPE for not only myself, but any clinicians that when I go into the facility for them to have as well. So one of the things I've been able to do is actually um, give masks to the clinicians and they get to keep them. And so they feel safe and maybe have a little bit more protection within their own facility if their facility doesn't happen to have all the PPE or it's more scarce. It's something I can provide them. Awesome. Jess, you want to talk about what PPE that is? Yeah, we can describe like what we've been using. You want me to go? <laughs> uh, so you do it for the hospital. I'll do it for my for like my private practice or like out in the field. Okay. At my hospital, the way we are currently preparing to do fees in terms of PPE, they are cohorted in the ICU and one of our ICUs. So I go down there and change out of my regular scrubs and into surgical scrubs. So and they have a room designated to like a clean room designated to do that changing process. And once I'm in surgical scrubs, um, I don an N95 mask that I've been fitted for, goggles, and a full face shield, a hairnet. This is not in the proper order, but these are all the things that I'm wearing. Um, A hairnet, a gown, gloves, and actually booties as well. And then the uh, everything that is not vital to the fees study that's on the tower, like, you know, our supplies, little bucket that comes off, um, our little binder that comes off, everything that doesn't need to be on there comes off. Um, And the fees tower is rolled in, we complete the study. And then when it is um, finished, we wipe the entire tower down, you know, from head to toe after we manage our own PPE. So that's how I can think of that we're doing it. Jess, you have anything to add? Nope, that's exactly it. And for the study itself, we have a sort of a protocol, uh, an unspoken protocol at our hospital where we kind of have a a way we go about presenting the PO trials and we just try to do it in a more brief fashion where we go through, we get the information we need and we get out of there. So, you know, this might not be a study where we're looking at a full meal, rather we're going through that set of trials, getting the information that we need about basic physiology, what we're going to need to do for those patients. And then we exit to keep, again, limiting the amount of time that we're in the room, but also limiting the scope time for the patient. And the room itself is listed as an AGP. There's a laminated sign, and then you hang that outside the door. And our hospital has policies that after an aerosol generating procedure has been completed, you put that up and then you mark the time that it stops being aerosol generating. But that way other staff members know, for example, like if somebody had done a breathing treatment, I would know before I went into that room, like, oh, a breathing treatment was done. This is the time that it's safe again. 
But to be quite honest, we're all doing all of those. We're all wearing all of that PPE, whether or not an AGP is going on or not. Like we're going into those rooms fully covered to do anything. So that's one of the things that I've really appreciated about our hospital system is that they've really set us up to almost be overprotected rather than underprotected. What about in other facilities you go to, Jess? So in other facilities, um, I've seen some different things. I've, again, we're in an area with a lower infestation rate, so we haven't been running out of PPE. So in some of my more rural hospitals, before I had my PPE that I had purchased, they were providing me with an N95, which I had been fitted for at my healthcare system. So I knew my fit. I knew my mask size. That's something else I would highly encourage clinicians. If you're going into a COVID ICU, make sure they are fitting you properly for your N95. But I knew my size. So they were able to provide me that. Um, I was wearing... It's going to sound insane. I was wearing ski goggles because I hadn't gotten my other goggles yet. So I looked very sporty. And then... (laughs) Thank you. I was... I had my scrubs on and then we were actually wearing gowns, um, actual cloth gowns, because a lot of places had run out of gowns quite early. So the the two rural hospitals that I go to the most, um, I had one gown on and then a second gown on. So a gown gloves, a second gown gloves, booties, hairnet, the goggles, and then N95. I did the study, same thing limited the amount of things that I was bringing into the room. I did all the setup outside the room, then went in completely ready to go, put the scope in, did a brief study, got out of the room to do all my review, all of my cleanup, all of that. You know, you take your your gown, your gloves, your booty, all of that stuff off first. You wash your hands super thoroughly, and then you take off your face shield, your goggles, anything else like that when you're in a safe area. And um, that's honestly, that's what I use for COVID patients is all of it. Head to toe protection, try to have layers so that I can take them off and get them off of me. And then I actually go a step further and I take hand sanitizer and I rub it on my neck, my chest and my arms as well to make sure that I'm scrubbing some of those other skin areas that could have had some particulates float on and I'm trying to get those wiped off. And that's kind of my biggest set of procedures. And then I wipe everything down with either bleach or alcohol sandy wipes. Yeah. It's time consuming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. What do, what do you do in some of your facilities as far as, like you said, with the, the room, you know, le- leaving a sign that it was an AGP or how is that handled? So it's really facility to facility. I offer suggestions to my facilities of, okay, So if this patient's in the room, they have to be in a room by themselves for me to do the study. And then usually I'm on, I'm an extremist in life. So I'm usually like five hours, give it, give it like five hours. If somebody goes into that room, they need to have an N95. They need to be covered. Like, I do not want to be the person that stirred the dust up and then somebody else came in behind me. So I'm again, like take it to the extreme, make sure that everything's safe. And then letting the patient know like, hey, just so you know, when people are going to be coming in, they're going to be fully donned with all of this PPE. But again, most of my facilities, even just base base practice, if they have a COVID patient, they are not going in without goggles, N95, gowns, shoe cover, hair cover, all of it. Because, and I, I mean, I'd like to think that maybe that's why my city has done maybe fairly well is that I haven't been in many facilities that haven't been taking this 
extremely seriously. And if they even have somebody suspected, not even confirmed, they are cohorted by themselves and staff is going and doing full PPE whenever they have any interactions with that patient. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing all that. You're welcome. Yeah. So hopefully this helps for those clinicians that are thinking about, you know, either resuming their feast, you know, practices, or if they have resumed them, just some things to consider when they're going in to do those, those studies with those patients. And I know, just like Kelsey said, you know, advocate for that PPE. I will say when you have, when you go to ask for something and you have valid reasoning behind it, very rarely, at least in my practice and in my life, very rarely am I told no, or at least not a no that's permanent. I might get an initial no, but I come back and eventually people usually give me what I want. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) Christina's smiling over there because she knows it's true. Yeah. Relentless. <laughs> Love it. In a good way. Love it. Yes, in a good way. Persistent, maybe is a better word. <laughs> yeah, so I w- I would love to I'd love to talk to you guys about you guys were basically involved with one of the first patients to ever survive coming off ECMO with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were I would say we've been feasing in our COVID ICU very, very early on, we, we set up those policies and procedures. I can't speak. I did. I actually didn't do the fees yet on a post-ECMO patient who had COVID. Um, I've just been doing a lot of fees on COVID patients. So that would be the wonderful Christina who can talk about that experience. Yeah. I mean, honestly, my feelings it was nothing super novel. I mean, he, the patient is incredibly special in himself and that he survived a long time on the ventilator, fair amount of time. I don't know the exact um, amount of time on ECMO was decannulated and weaned from the ventilator um, actually pretty close together. So he's a pretty special individual to have survived all that. But, you know, the way we went about the fees wasn't necessarily novel, intimidating, frightening. Yes, absolutely, because he's so fragile. This is the kind of patient who we don't have any wiggle room. We, he, you know, he can't handle a little bit of aspiration. You know, he just medically is so compromised. Um, he's so critically ill. So we want to be very procedural and very, we want to be very, careful with how we we broached the fees but he was by the time um he was fees um Jess had actually done his speaking valve evaluation he was doing extremely well with that and he he reached a point where he was um ready to do the swallow evaluation and um the fees rather and we kept it pretty short and sweet to limit the exposure you know it wasn't the kind of study where I'm in there trying you know superglottic swallows and a chin tuck and let's see what this does and let's see how what happens with you know if we try this, um, I'm, I'm really, like Joss mentioned before, looking for um, the physiology, looking for super concerning things and trying to get an idea of baseline swallow function so we can make some recommendations. But he did extremely well. So he was a, a patient who we were able to get on a modified diet um, right away and um, kind of slowly advanced from there and monitored him very closely, obviously. And we were in touch with the physician the entire time. Are you okay with us starting this diet? Monitoring chest x-rays and all the beautiful things that we have access to in acute care um, that I understand not all clinicians have access to. So that was that was my experience. I think he's one of a couple patients who I have fees who have come off of ECMO and 
there's not a great deal of difference in the other that you want to be really very careful and covering your bases and talking with all physicians involved, making sure that, you know, one doctor might have this opinion, but another doctor might have another opinion. You really want to get um, consensus across the group and make sure that everyone feels this is the right way to proceed. And just, this is not the kind of patient you want to be liberal with. You want to be um, mindful of all of their comorbidities and all of their current, um, their current status and all the things that could go wrong. Yeah. And, and I think, and Justin, and I talked about this before, not, not specific to the situation, but one thing was that some of your docs had mentioned, you know, even the smallest bit of aspiration on some of these fragile patients could end up in a really negative implication, which is why they are advocating to get fees done in these situations. Yeah, I definitely um, am watching, definitely taking into consideration the amount of aspiration or aspiration, just presence of aspiration and the tenuous nature of these patients, you know, they can't, some patients can handle a little bit of aspiration and every patient's different. These patients really can't. And so, uh, you know, under normal times, aside from COVID, if I see a little bit of scant aspiration or something, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to give more trials. I'm going to push the patient a little bit more and I'm going to be a little more liberal. Um, it's not to say that I shut the entire study down and just say, forget it, but um, it's, taking it into closer consideration and being more cautious with these patients because, you know, we don't want to be the ones to say, yeah, there's a little aspiration, but they're fine. And then have everything go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think that's one of the things we don't know. We don't know what these patients respiratory reserve is. We don't know what they're going to be able to handle or not. And all I have is what I hear from my pulmonologists and from my intensivists is their suspicions and what they see in the general acute respiratory failure population. And then considering all of the multi-organ failure that these patients are often going through. And so when they're telling me like, hey, I need you to be conservative, I take that into consideration. I definitely am taking that and going, okay, like, I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. We need an idea of what this patient can really do and what they can do consistently and safely. And before, you know, we do the study and then after we, we talk to the physicians before we just go, okay, these are my recommendations, you know, or at least I find myself going to them and going, this is what I saw. This is what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? And kind of having those multidisciplinary conversations before we're going and then initiating a diet or, you know, telling the team like, oh yeah, they did so great. Awesome. Like it's one of those things you come out of the room and you're like, yeah, I need to review. I need to go talk to the team. Like I'm not telling you anything until I've had time to think this through. Yeah. And definitely yeah. talking to, when I say team, like the PT and the OT and the, the nurse and everyone who sees that patient throughout the day at times when you don't, right? You know, just again, just like any other patient in non-COVID times, you want to get an idea of the patient overall. You you caught them for 20 minutes and it might've been their best 20 minutes of the day and it might've been their worst 20 minutes of the day. And what does that mean for them overall and what your recommendation should be? We, we need to consider that if we had their best 20 minutes of the day and then they're entirely fatigued and wiped the rest of the day and not able to maintain alertness, is it really the kind of, you know, really the time to be recommending a diet or should we be giving them more time to build up their endurance and their energy reserve? So, you know, I think the moral of the story is something that we've been doing pre-COVID and definitely now in the times of COVID is 
we don't practice on an island. We practice as a collective. You know, we're kind of like a hive mind, um, for lack of a better analogy. Like we practice as a team where at the hospital and other places I go, I don't allow <laughs> there to not be kind of this hive collective problem solving where I'm reaching out and going, hey, what do you think? This is what I think and I need your opinion. And so that's how we're coming to decisions for patients. And honestly, you know, in my my personal opinion is that we should be practicing this way all the time. Like there should never be a time where you're just unilaterally making a decision. It's always something that I think like we should come together and have a conversation and make these decisions together. And I see I see a lot of clinicians on the forums or people that reach out to me, the ones that oftentimes find themselves in a pickle are the ones that went and made decisions on their own without going to anybody else or considering anybody else on the multidisciplinary team. And they've gone and done something and then there's backlash from it or something went wrong. And then they realized, oh my God, I made this decision all on my own. (laughs) And based on what? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, we wouldn't want doctors doing that. We wouldn't want a nephrologist making a recommendation without taking consideration all the other portions of the patient, right? So, we want to, we have one small view of the patient, and there are a lot of people who have different views of the patient. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else? Did we cover everything? I don't know. I think, I think I'd like people at the end of the day after they listen to this. Whether or not you change your opinion on whether or not fees should be done right now, I think I'd like you to at least hear the other side of it and then really think about your patient. I really, really, really want you to think about the human being that is completely powerless and doesn't know what they don't know and they don't know how to advocate for themselves or may not even have the wherewithal to be advocating for themselves. And remember, that's that's what we're here for. And to not forget that component of your practice and to consider all of the information when deciding what clinical decision and what clinical route to, to go with these patients. And I guess I would just advocate for you to not, not forget instrumentation and having actual evidence for what you're doing because I think it's very compelling to do just a bedside and make some recommendations, but I don't think it's the right decision for our patients. Yeah, I think I would add that you feel, feel confident in what you're doing. And if you don't, then reach out to those who are going to have the answers to your questions or reach out to someone who has done this already, who has sort of paved the way or has more experience. Um, If you have questions about, you know, is this PPE sufficient for me, reach out to your infectious, you know, control specialist or do the research online and and inform your own opinion. Um, And at the end of the day, you know, that's what you have to be comfortable with is, is what, you know, you can only do what you're comfortable with. And I completely understand that there are speech pathologists out there who are not comfortable with this for whatever reasons there are, but there are, there are those who are comfortable with this and maybe comfortable is the wrong word, but willing to do this. And, and it's what some of these patients truly need. So I think that I've had to kind of let go of, I was thinking earlier about productivity and, you know, productivity is something that we all as, as medical SLPs, it's always kind of constantly in the back of your brain, kind of this nagging thing, you know, you know, if you have to wait for five minutes for someone to finish their or whatever, you're like, oh, my productivity is taking a hit. You know, you start getting the leg twitch. 
you know, dawning and dawning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you're like the internal clock is like tick, 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 your productivity. But it's, it's, it's not something that you should just throw out the window, but it's something that I've had to kind of be at ease with that it's going to take me time to don and dot this PPE and do it correctly. And it's going to take time to write these reports. It's going to take time for me to reach out and talk to family and talk to the physicians and have all these collaborative discussions. And it's going to take time. It's going to take more time to do all of this. And, and that's okay. And talk to your supervisors about that before you head and do it, if that's your concern, um, and make sure you have their support because you don't want to be rushing this stuff. So now, now is not the time to be to be rushing through something or because or, the, the stakes are too high. Thank you, Christina. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And now she's always going to, I'm going to have to have like a cup made that's like the productivity twitch for her. Yes. Oh God. Yes. It's a real thing, you guys. No. Yeah. Yeah. Of course it is. <laughs> yeah. I'm like putting on surgical straws in my mask. I'm like, well, there was 10 minutes right there. Okay. Oh, well, it was worth it. You know, he got a cinnamon roll. It's like every SLP everywhere. Um, well, thank you so much, you guys. I, I love what you're doing. I, I just love all the critical thinking involved. I love all the interdisciplinary considerations going on. And, and most of all, I love what you're doing for your patients. So thank you. Thank you so, thank you. so much. Yeah, we've had some really great success stories. So it's, it's motivating in that way. So thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening. Coming soon from Speech Science, Talking With Tech. With me, Rachel Madel and Chris Bouguet. What are we going to be talking about? Stop feeling so daunted by technology. Push the button. You're not going to break it. Help people start implementing. Maybe listen to our podcast and go, well, I could try that tomorrow. Conversations with the thought leaders behind all this. I'd also love to hear success stories. If it's working for you, then maybe it could work for somebody else. Go to tech.speechscience.org, subscribe to our podcast, and check that site for exclusive content that you won't see anywhere else. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Ivan Campos, Lucas Stuber, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication? 